goodness. From an Airbnb in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, after a little bit of a hiatus, Corner Kick is back, ladies and gentlemen. Nathan Strauss sitting to my right, Caleb Rhodes sitting to my left. We're back to give you a breakdown of the Champions League quarterfinal, talk about some of the fan incidents, and just generally bring our vibe to the game of soccer, the beautiful game, once again. Gentlemen, shall we begin with the Champions League quarterfinal draw? I think we should. I think that would be a, a reasonable thing well, to do. Well, first introduce yourselves. For the, for the camera, for the mic. For the my mic. Name. Since it's been a little bit. It's been a little bit. Uh, my voice might have dropped two or three tones. Um, it's Nathan Strauss, resident uh, Ajax supporter, uh, resident maker of, of poor bets with Nick Vinden. It's true. I'm Caleb. I'm just here for the ride. Here for, <laughs> here for the banter. Um, yeah, so Barcelona supporter. Yeah, so let's start with the uh, the tie of the round: Liverpool Porto. <laughs> um, that's really the glamour tie of this. Uh, yeah, I think um, as a Liverpool supporter in the room, and considering that we trounced Porto five nil away in this tie last season, uh, and something in the round of sixteen, I think Liverpool will get the job done. Again, I think uh, Porto, while they are a little bit better than they were last season, um, Edgar Militao, their best defender, just signed for Real Madrid um, on a pre-contract deal. So he will be not as focused on the rest of his days at Porto um, as he was maybe coming into this tie. Morega, Musa Morega, striker, playing for Porto. He's quite good. He scored quite a number of goals in the Champions League. Um, but I don't think he's a match for Virgil van Dijk, probably one of the player, best players in Europe this season. So I think Porto will get smacked both home and away by Liverpool once again, and we will see you in the semifinals. Yeah, I think we're looking at a, a Porto team that struggled to get by uh, a slightly a sixth-place Roma side in penalties. Yeah, and that Roma side was crap. And that Roma side did not play well. They relied on two like fairly lucky but... You know, somewhat skilled goals from Zainolo in the first leg, and then proceeded to come out playing like the most defensive formation while trying to protect a one-goal lead away um, at the Dragao. Um, Which although, is of course, a they, great strategy. they have, of course, oh yeah. I mean, Roma then sacked Eusebio Di Francesco after that game, but I don't think Liverpool will have any problems. I could see a, a an eight-one mm-hmm. aggregate scoreline. I think you guys are a little too infatuated with how this game went. Last year, I don't think I think I think it'll be because like Liverpool are better defensively but worse offensively than last year, even though they have the same offensive. Well, players. I don't think it'll be like eight one as no, 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 right. it might be no, like no, no. four. No, no, I, 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 I think it'll aggregate? be I think it'll be four one on aggregate. I can really? see like a two one away win and then like a two zero home win. I just think the fact that it's the same front three going into this tie as it was last season, they'll be motivated in the same way and that like they've done this before and that they could probably do it again yeah so i mean especially since yeah. mane has been on fire since 2019 began that's true and he was on fire in this game last season that's also true that's true move on to another tie let's move on i want to save uh yeah, the, the most controversial one for last, last. let's do uh, uh let's do, united sure caleb rhodes how are you feeling about drawing manchester united the newly revitalized Manchester United under the reign of uh, former player Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I'm feeling pretty positive for a variety <laughs> of reasons. For one, 
Barcelona are in pretty good form right now. I mean, Messi just destroyed Betis this weekend um, with an amazing hat trick, and his third goal is just an excellent chip from outside the box that and went far down. His 2009 goal. Yeah, 2009 10 goal against Tenerife in La Liga. Um, and then in terms Drive of like round of applause from Betis fans. Yeah, I mean. That's always a good indicator when the away fans are, or the home, home fans, fans give you give the away player round of applause. Yeah, um, and on Manchester United side, I'm feeling positive a because like two thirds of their squad is injured, so that helps. B, they've lost two games in a row. They just got knocked out of the FA Cup by Wolves. And then C, while they did complete a like their own remontada or so to speak against PSG, <laughs> they did it in like. 40,000 times less impressive fashion than Barcelona did. They literally just capitalized on two self-imposed PSG defensive errors from Carrer and Buffon and then received one of the most bull VAR calls. Like the car the single VAR like refereeing choice that has now shaken it, my faith in VAR as totally like, intentionally hit the back of Kimpembe's hand when he wasn't looking. Yeah, here's my thing. Yeah, it's an right? impossible like, call. I think, yeah. I think handballs like should be called a handball if it is, if it meaningfully changes the outcome of yeah. the game or is intentional. And those criteria can like work either together or separately. And neither of those apply. But neither of those seems like Dallo is taking a speculative shot from distance that was still rising. Like that thing was going nowhere close to the goal. Kimpembe jumps up and the ball hits him when his back is turned on his arm. Did that meaningfully change the course of the game? No, not at all. It was kind of bull. Yeah, but I think you're right in pointing out that, like, our relatively, I mean, obviously with injuries injuries aside, a, a fairly full-strength United squad conceded, like, 72% possession to a PSG side that was starting, like, Danny Alves in midfield, a, a Neymarless PSG side, um, and barely managed to score. Cavani oh, didn't play that game. Cavani came in, in like the like the eighty eighth minute or something. Well, once they lost, once they, yeah, once they once they conceded, conceded the second goal. Yeah, I think um, what what you need to the, the thing that hasn't really been said about this United run miracle run so to speak under Ole is that they've played relatively weak opposition in his tenure. Like after Mourinho was fired, Ole came in and his his first couple matches were against Cardiff and Fulham and, like, relegation-threatened teams or teams at the bottom half of the Premier League table. Obviously, they did well against um, Spurs, um, and they did well against PSG in that they beat them. But we also have to remember that um, they did lose 2-0 at home to PSG in the first leg of the tie. And they also displayed, really, a lot of ineptitudes against Arsenal. Yeah, exactly, when they lost 2-0. So I think they have flattered to deceive a little bit. I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is a tactical master. I think he's done a very good job of imbuing the club with positive spirit, yeah. which is the one thing that I think this team of frankly talented United players yeah. uh, did need. But I think that will only get you so far, and it certainly won't get you past the line against Barcelona. Yeah, I you know, and I could be proven wrong. I mean, Barcelona have not progressed past the quarterfinals in the past two seasons, right? They haven't made it to the semifinals in a few years now. And they certainly kind of collapsed against Roma last year. But I think this time around will be well managed by the club. So I, I see Barcelona going through. What is your, your your score prediction? I think I can see us winning like 2-1 away and then winning like 3-0 at home. Um, especially as Man U like push up and try to like get back into the second leg at Camp Nou. 
I think that's when Barcelona will really kind of just yeah. cut through them. And I think you're probably going to feel really threatened by a midfield of Andreas Pereira. In the <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, he has spades of experience from his time at Valencia. This one is very interesting, this next one. Yeah. Uh, City, Manchester City against Premier League rival Tottenham Hotspur in a two-legged tie. The thing that we should say about this is that they will play Spurs three times in the course of 11 in days. In the course of 11 days. Yeah, so it's the two Champions League ties or games, and then the Premier League game is the third one. I think that the, the people who can be most appreciative that this tie was drawn are any of the other Premier League teams in the top six. I think that Spurs are considerably hard, especially Liverpool. I think Spurs are a considerably more difficult opponent for City than I would say like three of the other seventeen three of the of the other six teams they could have drawn. Spurs have been thin all season, um, especially with injuries to Deli Ali and Harry Kane. Um, is Kane, is Kane they're both back? back? They're both back they're both now. Back. Right. So I think I, I do see City progressing, although they do not have the greatest history uh, of, of Champions League knockout football in general. Obviously losing at this stage to Liverpool last year. Very decisively. Very decisively. At the same time, they did just win like 7-0 against Schalke in the second yeah. leg. And I think where... I well, remember that that happened last season as well. They beat Basel. Oh, really? By, like, sort of the same scoreline. Yeah, I feel like Schalke are better than Basel, though. But, like, point taken. But, I mean, Schalke also don't have any fit strikers. Like, they're playing Weston McKinney but that doesn't. Striker. But that doesn't explain why they lost 7-0. That just explains why they didn't score. I think if Spurs... The thing about Spurs is that I feel like Pochettino is the kind of manager that will, after several times of playing... Change it up each Change time. it up a little bit. He's very good at that. Especially with a side that hasn't had much um, influx of transfers in recent years. So he's used a couple of formations this year. He's used a 4-3-3. He's used a diamond formation. Um, I don't quite remember what their results have been against City this season. Um, I don't think it's been positive, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. I think, I think the problem for like Spurs in particular would be like center midfield depth. Because I don't think Harry Winks and like Musa Sissoko can give City a game three games in a row. I think uh, it's just so difficult because I'm not, I'm not totally confident in City in the Champions League for whatever reason, just based off past history. Mm-hmm. But I think the comfort against Spurs, comfort in them as like a Premier League opponent already, mm-hmm. I think that will get them across the line. And that their squad is just so much more, has so much more depth and so much more quality than Spurs' squad. Yeah. So, Over two legs. So just out of curiosity, so so Spurs' only meeting with City so far this season was a 1-0 loss back in October. And Spurs are playing a four-two-three-one in which they also started Musa Dembele and Eric Lamella. And, um, and Dembele the goal, has since gone to China. Yeah. And Lamella has since been sat back on the bench. bench. Yeah. And the goal that was scored was Mares scoring in the in the sixth minute. Mm. And Spurs were only outpossessed fifty-two percent to four percent. Uh, so they can sorry, definitely forty-eight percent rather. I think that I, I really see Spurs coming out in that first leg playing the three-four-one-two or the three-four-two-one they've been playing. Hey. Um, just because I think that um, the best way to counter City's attacking fullbacks and sort of marauding midfielders is to play with those wingbacks to have that extra help on, on defense. Yeah, I um, think... But if that, if that first leg goes, goes poorly, I don't know what Pochettino will do. He doesn't exactly have the most versatile like rotation no. options, as no. you were saying. Yeah, I think so. we can agree that the first leg is vital for Spurs. And like, that might be... A bit of like a truism in that, like presumably all the first legs are vital. <laughs> right. Well, I think especially in the first but, leg against City, 
Right. You don't no, want right. you don't want to be in a in a position where like City home? are prepared to rotate. They're at home first. I think if Spurs can, as usual, in a very Spurs way, be very compact and defensive. Yeah. Um, if they can, they need to limit the amount of mistakes. The Kieran Trippier own goal situation can't right. happen against City. Um, I really think Harry Winks needs to be sat in this game. I don't know if that's possible considering their options. I just think they need to. Pochettino really needs to think about what his best team is going into this game. Yeah, meanwhile, arguably, Guardiola does not. No. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> this man was out here playing Danilo. <laughs> at, at center back. back and at center back. Them. Yeah. So, I think he'll come out, um, I think he'll take advantage of the fact that they have much better midfield options. Yeah. And it's just a bad look. Try and pass them to death, potentially. It, it's <laughs> a bad look for Spurs, too, if they lose those two games decisively and then have to play them a third time in the Premier League like, four days after no, right. that second tie. Like, how do you motivate a squad that's now, that that, that would have then lost two consecutive, no, I think it's like, Champions League ties? Yeah. And this is the first team that's still, like, ostensibly in the fight for a top four spot. Like, they're in third place right now, but they're only a point ahead of Arsenal. Yeah, I think it could be a really bad 11 days for Spurs, or it could be a just, like, a mediocre. season-defining if they can, if they can, If they can keep that sure. first leg to, like, nil-nil or 1-1 one, one or something yeah. like that, then I see, I could see them really capitalizing on one error. Yeah, I think, I don't know, just, I think it'll be, like, 5-2 on it. I just yeah. think they could get blown away at the Etihad, honestly. That's what I'm saying. That, yeah, no, That's, yeah. like, 5-2. I could see it being, like, a 2-2 tie at Spurs, and then City just taking over. Right, um, and then and then they their their Premier League game is also at the Etihad, right? right. So they, they'll probably just stay in Manchester, just kind of like lick their wounds and then get those Stop. wounds reopened really yeah. quickly. Um, yeah, I think I think. So. All right, this is it. This yeah. is the, yeah. Nathan Strauss ready that ammo because we're going to talk about Juventus versus Ajax. And while we've been here in Montreal, we haven't seen each other. We haven't seen each other, <laughs> seen each other in a little bit. So we're taking a little little vacation, um, corner kick retreat, as some may say. Yep. Um, Team building, we're Nathan doing Strauss, courses. And- Nathan Strauss has pent the uh, yeah, as, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> improv exercises. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes and. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, Nathan Strauss has been trying to talk us into Ajax beating Juventus as they did Real Madrid. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the floor the next couple minutes or so. To um, Nathan Phillips Strauss as he as he tries to convince all of you as he's tried to convince Caleb and I uh, as to why Ajax will beat a Juventus team that came back against one of the staunchest defenses in Europe most recently. So I, I think before I even say anything, it's important to consider the past that I have with these two, you know, fine gentlemen. I've tried to convince them of Ajax's fortitude in the past. In fact, and, and, and in you've fact, been proven right, and you've been proven wrong. In fact, in the year of corner kicks inception, in that same spring, an Ajax team that contained more or less the same players that this team does made it to the Europa League final, and I was so convinced that this Ajax squad was going to beat Jose Mourinho's Manchester United that I spent probably the better part of three weeks trying to talk them up. And needless to say, that Ajax side got absolutely just obliterated. Like they lost two 0 but it was a Mourinho team that scored early and then decided to put 11 men behind the ball uh, at all times. So it was not a good look for Ajax. It was well, we worse just, of a we look tuned for... In. We tuned into this game. <laughs> we <laughs> my, to... Hold on, hold on, hold on. We tuned into this game at my house. I gotta edit my address. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm good. laughs>
<laughs> Ask for Janet or Sachi. I gotta, I got just a quick note for Nick editing this podcast. Edit your address out of the podcast. <laughs> we came. <laughs> okay, just to just to give you guys some some preface for this, we sat down at my house. Nathan has been the most excited I've ever seen him in my entire life. For uh. The most excited I've ever seen in my entire life for for a, a match. Um, he's like, wow, Ajax are going to like obliterate Man United. They have like Hakim Ziyech. They have Casper I, I'm wearing my like 2012 Ajax yeah. away kit. They have all these really phenomenal young players. I'm hyped up on like Russian Amin sodas. Amin Younes. Amin Younes who proceeded to get a Germany call-up at the end yeah. of that. Sits, sits on the bench at Napoli. And he just scored the other day. He just scored okay, literally he, like four days ago. He sits on the bench most days. Yeah. But whatever. Yes. <laughs> and then Caleb and I were like, oh, wow. Like, wow. What if they can like, kind of pull us up? And we saw them get, in common parlance, dicked by <laughs> <laughs> by a Man United team that wasn't really great. They finished fifth that season in the Premier League. Yeah. But they really showed that why Ajax... Our Ajax and they play in the Eredivisie and well, I don't know. Well, blaming Ajax for playing in the Eredivisie, I don't think it's like the most. Like, I'm just saying that there is like... there's a difference between Premier League teams and Eredivisie teams. And Juventus. And Juventus. So, so continue. But now, try, now, try now, and now convince, give us your case. Try and convince the people. Sorry. So my case for Ajax is this. So this is an Ajax team that had not conceded a goal uh, in Europe until a. Or that had not lost a game in Europe until their first leg against Real Madrid. And this goes all the way back to, I think, the third qualifying round when they destroyed Sturm Graz on aggregate. They then proceeded to destroy uh, Standard Liege, Liege on aggregate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then beat some other like middling... Uh, they beat Danilo Kiev, maybe, on aggregate. Yeah, they beat some middling teams. Sure. And then they... they In their group stage, which is not... They did not have an easy group. They played mm-hmm. Bayern, Benfica, and Ajax Athens. Mm-hmm. And they managed to draw Bayern twice. Actually, sorry. They beat Bayern once and drew them... They, they beat Bayern 3-2 at home and drew them away, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they drew Benfica twice and they beat Ajax twice. Mm-hmm. Um they showed that they were able to compete with some of the best. Uh, and then, obviously, like the most, their most crucial game so far this year was their, their two-legged affair with Real Madrid. A, very, mm-hmm. a, a pretty underwhelming Real Madrid team by Real Madrid standards, but still a team that possessed you know, Sergio Ramos and Gareth Bale and Benzema, players that are considerably above the, the level of um, teams that Ajax will be playing mm-hmm. in the Andalusi. And... Despite dominating the game in the first leg against Real Madrid to the point where 538's expected goals metric had them scoring 3.5 goals, whereas Real Madrid scored 0.8 via expected goals, despite the fact that the, the actual tie finished 2-1 in that leg, um, they still managed to they, they still lost that first leg. So then they were going into the Bernabeu, down having already conceded two away goals, needing to essentially score three goals and win, and they came to the Bernabeu. And I would argue perform the best of the Bernabeu that any team has not named Barcelona in the past 10 years. Like Ajax really just styled on Real Madrid. They scored three of the best goals of this season. Okay. Um, capped off by wait, a, a Lassie Scherner free kick. 
that should win the Pushkas. But all this is good, but why does that mean that they're going to beat Juventus? They're going to beat like, Juventus. Like that, that's the case you need to make, and all you're telling me is things that they've already done. Okay, so why they're going to beat Juventus is thus. Is thus. Oh, you said thus, so... So first of all, <laughs> who would you say Juventus' main threat is? This is not a trick question. Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo Dos Santos, Aviero Jr. Indeed. So, Cristiano Ronaldo, when man-marked by Matias De Ligt, Ajax's 19-year-old captain, when they have played at the international level, sure. uh, De Ligt In held Ronaldo, okay, Ronaldo okay, to okay. one okay. shot. All right, 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 all right. There, is, there are two Ronaldos. There's Club Ronaldo, which is the GOAT Ronaldo. The Ronaldo that many people consider to be one of the greatest players of all time. I don't think the three of us here have much appreciation for that statement, but it, many people in our, our industry do. And there's international Ronaldo, who is kind of known for not really trying his best. You know, he's not really done much on the international stage. I mean, he led Portugal to the Euro 2016 championship. I mean, other than when he didn't play in the final, because he got attacked by Moth. Yeah, but in the worst game. But, that, but, but, but let's let that point sit there for a second because there's Ronaldo who played who's played for his club and is the highest Champions League goal scorer of all time yeah and there's international Ronaldo and I would just like to make that point continue so what Ajax did so impressively against Real Madrid and what they'll presumably do against Juventus is line up in a strikerless 4-3-3 so Ajax have (laughs) (laughs) okay if you're making fun of me before I even give my defense we're not even making fun no no you just need to you spent so long. It's the same thing. We've just condensed three weeks of hyping Ajax up into like 14 minutes right now in this podcast. And it's just like, I want you to get to the point. Like, you haven't talked about anything. Okay, delete, man marking out. You can't possibly draw some like causational thing when it's two completely different teams playing each other. Portugal and Netherlands versus Ajax and Juventus. Like, okay, and like, let me explain what Ajax are going to do in this game. And, Ajax- and then, then explain why that will result in them winning. Okay, yeah. so Ajax will play a 4-3-3 with a front three of Zia, Tadic, and David Neres. Mm-hmm. Their midfield will likely be Lassie Schoen, Donny van de Beek, and Barca-bound Frankie de Jong. Okay, so the fact that you know this already in advance, do you not think that Allegri has also studied this? Yeah, but the fact that he studied it, Ajax's high press against Real Madrid was like a textbook high press. Okay, it's also a Real Madrid team who were at the... Perhaps since the three of us have been watching this game, the lowest point they have ever been at. And we're playing a Juventus team that just lost, what, 2-0 to Genoa without registering a shot on Heavily target? rotating, who are leading the, uh, the and, Serie A and by like 12 been, points. had been undefeated to that point. Like, I'm sorry. You can't, you can't, I don't know. Okay, I, so I, I, really, I really do see Ajax progressing in this why? tie. You haven't told us why. Why did, what, I, what, what is there left to explain? You I haven't think, explained anything. Okay, so I think Juventus, Juventus, yeah. Juventus, like, yes. okay. <laughs> Juventus are not accustomed to being pressed off the ball. We saw them. What the we f- saw that. We saw that. Wait, to my point, we saw them struggle when they were down. Wait, we saw them struggle in the first leg at the Wanda Metropolitano Ooh, when they lost two 0 and then Atleti decided to play an incredibly defensive 4-4-2. They still pressed at, them. No, but they didn't press as effectively because, because they were protecting a two-goal lead. So all I'm saying is Ajax has so proven think, that they can beat the best of Europe when they beat Real Madrid this year. Real the Madrid reigning, are not the best of Europe. They're the reigning three-time. They're time, not the best of Europe this year. They don't have Ronaldo. They, they were, were the, playing Sergio Regulon at left back. I don't even know. He sounds okay. like a French okay. dish. 
I will. Can I? Can I give you? <laughs> yes. Yes, that was actually the other option for Ratatouille the movie. <laughs> 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 um, okay, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you IX some points. They've played well this year. They've done about as well as they could have. They're not however, even leading the Eredivisie. However, the point. Juventus have probably one of the most adaptable squads in Europe. They can line up so many different ways. So many different ways. Ajax, meanwhile, own trot out their, like, false 9-4-3-3 in Champions League games. Allegri knows this. Allegri has 32 different formations he can use that Ajax will have no fucking clue what he's going to do next. And also, your whole argument is structured on this like really weird perception of time where you talk about Madrid being at their lowest point in 10 years and yet Kinch Juventus' quality on their like last loss to Genoa this weekend, which was like uh, yeah, two days ago, yesterday, whatever. And so, oh, like, no, no, no. That's Nick. Nick is the one diminishing Real Madrid. I'm saying that Real Madrid were reigning three-time champions. No, my point is you're using that argument and then saying, therefore, this team, this Real Madrid team is still that three-time. I know, but when they're just, fundamentally also, not. You're not, you're not recognizing that this isn't the same Real Madrid that beat Liverpool last season in the Champions I'll League also Super. say, like, I don't even know why we've spent so much time talking about this because Juventus are going to breeze through to the semifinals. I just don't think that's true. I think that they can. Oh, and then you haven't told us why. We've been sitting here asking you to tell us why for 10 minutes. Juventus are a top Serie A. Ajax are second place in the Eredivisie. Yeah. They're second. Ajax. Like, if, you're look, if you're looking for like, team performance lost. If you over want to time, talk about a loss at the weekend, Ajax just lost at the weekend to Azed Alkmaar. That's a good point. <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> 538. 538 ranks Ajax, I believe, as like the eighth best team in Europe. And what do they rank Juventus? I'm going to check that out <laughs> right now. Like, 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 okay, so Bleacher Report always ranks Juventus as either like the second or first team in their rankings. Okay, so Juventus is fourth and Ajax are fifth. Juventus gives... So, I know, but sorry, you can't go... 538 conflates no, all of these... 538, 538 gives Juve a 59% chance of advancing and gives I Ajax a 41% chance of advancing. I think that's pretty fair. I don't think that's fair at all. I think it's pretty fair. I, I think it's disrespectful to Juventus, honestly. I think you're disrespecting Ajax. I think you're disrespecting no, all of our listeners by wasting their time right now. I just don't think that's true. I just... I, I, Ajax are ranked 10th right now and Juventus are ranked 7th. That's bullshit. In what? 7th? By, in, the, in UEFA's club rank. In 538's club Juventus ranks. is one of the only teams right now in Europe that I think could beat Liverpool quite handily. Quite handily? What are you talking about? That's just not true. I don't think that's true I at all. I think they could. Okay, I don't, we don't need to make this comparison now. I think the point is, Ajax have performed about as good as possible in Europe this season, despite somehow still being second at home. I think they have is... a bunch of talent, like Delict and Frankie De Jong, that are going to go to top teams. You know, Dusan Tadic, who, mind you, was like a mediocre Southampton player. Has is now just, like, the second highest contributor of goals and assists in the entirety of Europe. I mean, yes, if you include non-top five leagues, which aren't normally included when discussing these comparative statistics. Point being, it's a bit of an apples to oranges comparison. Ajax are definitely underdogs, and describing them as anything other than that is just foolhardy on multiple levels. I'm not saying that they're not underdogs. I'm just saying that I think You're they'll win. You're saying that they're going to win. That means that you That's the whole point that... of rooting for underdogs. You can root... No, you can root for an underdog without expecting them to win. You expect this team to win, which therefore means you don't think they're underdogs. You think that they have a better probability of winning than the other team, which is the opposite definition of underdogs. And I think it's foolish, considering the fact that Caleb and I have laid out really, like, I un- think, smart points. Yeah, just on this point, like underdogs is when a team has a 5% chance of winning, and you think they're going to win. When you think that 
Ajax have a 60% chance of winning and you think they're going to win, that is not an underdog. I actually think that Ajax have more like a, a 33 and one-third chance of winning. But, but I don't think Matias you do. But I don't think you mix. do. I think, I think now you're backing up. Yeah. You're backing off this point. But when you take a genetic freak, like Matias Delict. <laughs> I know, but that's even then. Portugal is <laughs> Portugal don't have many threats, right? They we're not talking about Portugal here. We're talking. You about, were talking about Portugal. You okay. were talking about also, the like also, man marking. Also, we haven't really addressed the whole like like the whole man U Ajax thing. Really should be a wake up call. That should be the wake up call. But why? Because that was you a all very thought that Ajax were going to lose to Real. Because yeah, I think that's perfectly should. reasonable. And then, and then because of huge structure, like unbelievably large yeah. structure, which we'll get into soon. Like mm-hmm. shockingly big issues with Real Madrid as a club, they just like exploited yeah. that and good for and them. Guess what? But that doesn't mean they're going to be Juventus. And guess what? Santiago, Santiago Solari, who is the coach of Real Madrid during that time, is gone. Pretty recently, following that, yeah. And talking about hamstringing yourself, I mean, like two Madrid forwards went off injured. He didn't even bring uh, Solari. Didn't sorry. even bring Isco to the game. He decided to leave Marcelo on the bench in favor of Reguillon, which, like, maybe there was a little bit of merit to that because Marcelo seems to have lost his exit. But point being, like, this is not a Madrid team that was optimally set up to succeed. No, this was not the three-time defending European champions right. Real Madrid. And this so was I think the sham. Can, and then trying to, like, play that into your argument is just pointless then because it's, like, it's yeah. false. I have several problems with what you're saying. but And we've discussed pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think... We're going to both say that Juventus are going to go through like quite handily 4 1 on aggregate, right? And you're going to say that what they're going to go through 3 2 on aggregate or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think I think 3 2 is just about the right okay. Ball and we're going to be right three. and you're going to be wrong. And, and I'm going to have video or audio evidence of the two of you doubting me once again as you doubted me today as I led you through the underground of Montreal. And I don't think anyone was also, I'll just say. We have doubted you and been correct. <laughs> Several times. I refer you to the second episode of this podcast in 20, yeah. released in 2017 what did I regarding say? RB Leipzig um, as one of those major points. What did I say about RB Leipzig that's been, that, that's been incorrect? You can go and listen to that episode if you would like. It is on our SoundCloud. All right, let's move on. Um, let's talk about what Caleb was alluding to a couple minutes ago. Let's talk about our uh, segment here that I've marked. Clubs in Turmoil. Do we want to begin with Chelsea or do we want to begin with Real Madrid? Let's begin with Real Madrid. Madrid, right. Okay. Let me tell you a story. I'm a club. I'm a soccer club. I won't say which one. And I have one of the two best players of a generation. And I'm going to let him leave. And then I'm going to buy a goalkeeper. Oh, and this one of his best players is a forward who scores like 40% of our (laughs) goals every year. And his replacement is going to be a goalkeeper. What could go wrong, they said. Well, let me tell you. Everything could go wrong. And the club is Real Madrid, who have gone through two managers this year. They've gone through Lopeta Hui, who was a disaster from the start. From, 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 the, from day literally one. Literally day one. Um, and Solari, who just got fired after Madrid lost to Ajax. Madrid just, their squad is aging. Okay, I don't care if Modric is a Ballon d'Or winner. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. a little bit of saltiness um, I sense. But he's, he's old. Kreuz is not a goal threat. Casemiro is average. On I've always thought he's average. He scores goals in big games okay, than that. Not letting Isco play when he's one of your best creative players who can score well, goals from midfield. Idiotic. Also, allowing Isco to be ill-disciplined yeah. in his fitness regimen is also right. irresponsible. Well, I think the two play into each other, though. Like, Isco not being selected further enables him to no, like, right, fall but, out but of the, but then, But then, as manager, like, Solari shouldn't have then gone to the press and been like, 
yeah, he's fat and he Bad sucks. Mouth. Like, right, you yeah. can deal with that internally, but I just, Solari, the way he dealt with the press was stupid. Like, he would also, like, denigrate Bale publicly. Like, what are you doing? Like, your team is in bad form. You're struggling. And so rather than having two of your offensive players that have been underperforming, like, in good mental shape, he's just taking them out of good mental shape. Like, oh, my God. Well, he's recently departed the club um, following a disastrous run of fixtures involving several La Liga defeats um, and the embarrassing Ajax. uh, And then another embarrassing element of that game, right, like, Sergio Ramos got a tactical yellow against Ajax in the first leg, and so that he would be out for the for he'd be available in for the, the first, first game of the quarterfinals, and that didn't happen. And <laughs> well, then he talked about that publicly, and then got suspended um, for so, an extra game, which means that he'll miss the first game of Champions League play next year. Which uh, at this rate might end up being the Champions League playoffs for Madrid, right? If they don't well get their league. The silver together. lining of all of this disastrous and also there's rifts between the president and the players and yeah uh Perez and Ramos apparently had a shouting match in the dressing room yeah following the Ajax tie um where Sergio Ramos was threatening Perez to sell him um so following all of this and following talks of Jose Mourinho of all people coming in to take over the reins once Mm -hmm. again at Real Madrid instead it was a flashy flashy Frenchman in skin tight jeans and a uh, olive blazer, <laughs> who waltzed into a Real Madrid press conference ten months after offering his resignation to the club, and perhaps one of the greatest negotiation moves and returns of all time. Zinedine Zidane is back right. at Real Madrid, and I think this is one of the smartest managerial turnarounds ever. Because so I think now he has potentially some of the most the biggest bargaining power of any manager in terms of leverage with the board or president. Um, he'll get whoever he wants to in the summer. As noted by him signing Edar Militao within a week of being hired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we'll start finally start to see players like Eden Hazard and a big-name striker come to Real Madrid. Yeah. And um, it brings the star power that Real Madrid were potentially lacking. Yeah. I mean, these problems are obvious. Like, right. They needed more. They needed to replace goals this summer, not only because Ronaldo left, but because their striker Benzema is aging anyway, and they just didn't. They needed to rejuvenate their midfield, and instead they're just like, no, we'll pull Danny Ceballos off the bench every once in a while. Okay, their defense. Ramos is still a good defender, but while he scores lots of goals, his just discipline has just eroded, and his discipline was never that great to begin with. Mm-hmm. Marcelo has lost his legs. Like, Reguillon is not the long-term right back. Maybe they'll recall Theo Hernandez. Right? Like, there are just so many easily, easily seen issues with this club, yeah. and they've just chosen to do nothing. And, and I Zidane think if you are, the first step. And I think if, you, if you're Eden Hazard or Mauro Riccardi or potentially even Robert Lewandowski, do you want to wait for a little bit for Real Madrid to get a manager who's not Lopetegui or Solari? Or would you want to come to Real Madrid when they're being rebuilt by Zidane, once again, yeah. who's a proven successful coach yeah. with this club. Yeah. And I think the one, the other bright spot for Real Madrid this year has been the development of Vinicius, who, although he's now out for the rest of the year with an injury sustained in that second leg of the Champions League, um, has looked really, really bright for them on the left wing. His decision-making still needs a lot of work. Um, that's somewhat to be expected from a teenager, um, but he definitely has looked like he's been worth the, worth the weight and uh, worth the money, and so he should be certainly a contributor on the wing next year. Um, 
But yeah, Real Madrid's priorities are um, in order, I would say, signing a world-class striker and then signing a world-class midfielder. And Real Madrid really can't afford to settle for anything less than a world-class signing this summer because last summer they decided to go with quantity over quality, um, bringing in Mariano, who's been out this year Well, that's the one thing about Zidane, right? Zidane never really brought a Galactico into the club. So this will be the first time where he is really under pressure to bring in good players to the club. And if he doesn't do that, then I think we'll finally see Zidane and Hot Water come the beginning of next season if that doesn't happen. I think Real Madrid... In a similar manner to many clubs that underperform, need to trim the fat a little bit. Like I think they're they have a, a large enough squad with aging players like Marcelo, who's been rumored to be off to Juventus next year, um, and Modric, who, despite being the recent Ballon d'Or winner, is still thirty four. Thirty four. Yeah, he's still thirty four and has really looked to be fading so far this he's year. He's looked every bit of as favorite. demonstrated by the the two consecutive Clasico defeats, where Modric really did just look. Like, not just one step behind, but two or three steps behind the whole game. So, signing a world-class striker like Icardi, or another world-class attacker like Hazard, and then getting a world-class midfielder, um, especially an attacking one who can complement Casemiro and Kroos, Kroos, who's in the prime of his career, and Casemiro, who's 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Those are the two priorities. So let's move on to the other club in turmoil, Chelsea Football Club, led by smoking drunk uncle, Here's the problem with Chelsea. Their owner, Roman Abramovich, cannot enter the country in which his club plays um, legally. Maurizio Sarri has no control over the player power that has seemed to kick out every single Chelsea manager in the past couple of years. Mourinho, Antonio Conte, Di Matteo, all of these players, all these coaches. What is going on with Chelsea? Why is player power seemingly well, ruining the structure I think, of their club? Can I start? Yeah. I think the problem with Chelsea is that what Antonio Conte did is he played a system. And what that system did was mask the glaring deficiencies of the squad. And now that they're no longer playing a back three, and they're back to playing a 4-3-3, which is a difficult formation to play. Like Most teams just can't pull it off. Like They'd rather play a 4-2-3-1 and just play two kind of more box-to-box players. 4-3-3 requires, like, finesse and control. And the thing is, Jorginho, who he brought in, can pass side-to-side, but he doesn't offer any... I don't think he's assisted anyone. No, and he can't really defend. Right. So, okay, so they have, like, a metronome who doesn't really, like... And Chelsea fans are a little bit annoyed with him, considering he hasn't statistically done much of anything nor is he capable of defending in the Premier League that is very much reliant on physicality. No, right. Like, midfielders, you want, even metronomes, you want them to have, like, some ability for, like, syncopation. I mean, right? like, look at, like, Granit Xhaka. Yeah. So, I mean, even though he's struggled defensively, Fabinho. he still defends. Fabinho right. is the perfect example of this. Yeah. Fabinho is, uh, like, a modern footballer who can both pass and defend and is quite physical. Yeah, and so I think what Sari has refused to do is at any point deviate from a 4-3-3 at all. And I think we can go back even further and look at the transfers that were made by Conte. Mm-hmm. Like, this Chelsea squad is just full of players who aren't, you know, Premier League top six quality. Like, Danny Drinkwater and Ross Barkley were both signed for, like, 25 to $30 million, kind of on whims, because they were players that were maybe slightly too good for their previous clubs um, who wanted to leave. But even players like Emerson Palmieri or David Zappacosta, who's been, got, who's been getting a little bit of playing time recently are just not good enough for Chelsea. And simply having a squad put together of, like, B-plus Italians and, like, English Premier League players 
isn't good enough, especially when you're trying to play a team that at the beginning of the year was being led by an informed Eden Hazard, but now has sort of regressed in the past two months. You also add in probably the most disgraceful player incident of the year. Well, before we even uh, talk about that, I think when you see all these managers come and go and they don't have the trust of the board, so much to that like, one big mistake like Conte losing a lot during his second year at Chelsea, not performing very well in the Premier League, leading to him being dismissed, I think player power starts to take over, especially when you have stars like Eden Hazard, Willian, who have been at the club far longer than any of these coaches coming in, right? So I think that leads to incidents like the Kepa situation, where the players feel like, well, the club is not being run well, so why should we have any respect for the people who are running the club? But the same thing happened when Mourinho was in his last days at Chelsea, too. Mm -hmm. There was a player revolt, which is not uncommon at all for Mourinho teams. A player revolt, you know, Mourinho, who's, who is, it was like, it was like March of that year or February of that year was almost a full year removed from winning silverware, had clearly lost the locker room, and then you see the players revolt, and then he got sacked, and then he was replaced by... Um, Gus Hiddink. Yeah, Gus Hiddink for the rest of the season. Who's, well, Gus, Gus Hiddink, who is a, essentially a shill, let's put up for the board, for, for, the, Chelsea, for the, Chelsea, uh, the Chelsea boardroom, and then Chelsea started doing really well. Right, so I think it's clear that the problems extend not just... They clearly extend beyond Sarri and into the board and Roman Abramovich... Who's, there have been rumors of him you know, potentially putting the club up for sale as he tries to shed his London equity um, as he can't actually... He's trying to escape back to the Kremlin. Yeah, although he's now an Israeli citizen. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's talk about the Kepa incident too because we didn't really talk about yeah. like, so, what that was. Carabao Cup final in February of this year. Kepa Aritza Balaga pulls up lame in the uh, 118th minute of the match and Maurizio Sarri logically, as it might seem is looking to make a tactical change to try change his goalkeeper before the penalty shootout to Willy Caballero, a goalkeeper who is the backup now for Chelsea, but was formerly the backup for Man City and knows a lot of the Man City players. Who had also won a Premier League a, a shootout in the same competition the year Against before. Against Kepa sees that his number has come up, waves his finger, is like, no, 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 I'm not coming off. And the referee... Goes and talks to Keppa, goes and talks to Sari, and Keppa is still refusing to come off. He talks to David Luiz, who I think was Chelsea's the captain, captain of the day, the guy, yeah. and is like, no, I'm not coming off. And Mauricio Sari is like, no, you're coming off. But Keppa is like, no, I'm not coming off. Willy Caballero is standing there very awkwardly, like he's just been left at the altar at his own wedding. At the end of the day, the referee, John Moss, goes over to the uh, fourth official and Maurizio Sarri, and it's like, well, Kepa's not coming off. He's refusing to be substituted, therefore you cannot bring on Willy Caballero. And Maurizio Sarri storms onto the bench, throws his jacket off, throws his water bottle, walks down the tunnel, but then proceeds to walk back. He's like, well, that'd be a really bad look if I walk down the tunnel, which I think was fully his intention to just like walk away from the job at that moment. Um, but I think that situation of player power gone wrong and revolts against the people who are running the club fully encapsulates the problems that are going on at Chelsea right now. And Chelsea are also about to get hit with a transfer ban as well for similar problems that Barcelona and City have also had um, involving the signing of under-17 or under-18 players for their youth academy. So Chelsea are clearly a club in crisis. What can they do to fix it? I think it needs to start with Roman Abramovich selling the club. I think this won't get better until 
a different group comes in that is actually present for the team that is invested in the situation at the club can put more money. Because I think the other thing that's important to note is that Chelsea don't exactly have the financial firepower that they used to. Manchester City, Liverpool, Man United, and even Arsenal spend more money on players than Chelsea do. Get these big names in. Like Gonzalo Higuain. Not not Spurs. (laughs) Yeah. I think they also need a a manager who's more adept, more like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, more like Jurgen Klopp, who will really put their arm around these players. So not Um, an Italian? Not an Italian. Not a drunk (laughs) uncle like Maurizio Sarri. Maybe a younger coach. Um, Maybe take risks with who they appoint as manager. Someone who, uh, who understands the importance of man management. Yeah, weirdly enough, I think a good candidate for this job would have been Julian Nagelsmann had he not been appointed by or signed by Leipzig for the following year. But I think similarly to what I said about Real Madrid, Chelsea are another club that really needs to trim some of the fat. And, and hot take, they have their next manager at the club already. In, it's Gianfranco Zola. Really? Someone who will Oh, wow. Someone, that is a hot take and mm-hmm. a half. We said not an Italian, though. But Well, <laughs> he, is someone, he is someone who knows the club. He's played for them. He is currently the like de facto um, man that the players go to. Could you see them turning to Frank Lampard, of, currently of Derby? I think it'd be... Who led them to... Uh, I think it's it's too soon for Lampard, but I think it's a pretty good option. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we see we see the success that that Solskjaer has. And obviously, Solskjaer had managerial experience, having been an assistant manager for many years, and then also having managed Mold, Molde. Uh, Cardiff. Uh, yeah, Cardiff, which did not go well. I mean, he was pretty good when he got... Because he was a, um, a managerial replacement for someone. Yeah. And then he almost kept them up. But, I mean, it's always a tough job. I mean, even even Marco Silva couldn't keep Hull up after being appointed midway through the year. So, um, I think they need they need someone who will be like a father figure to a lot of the players at this club. And and I think... I think the problem is this club has no pillars. Right? Like, the old Chelsea teams had a pillar. They had... At every position. Yeah. They had a goalkeeper in Petr Cech. They had a defender in John Terry. They had a midfielder in Lampard. And, and they had a striker in Drogba. Yeah. Who is the pillar of this team? Not Eden Hazard, even though he's one of the longest-serving players no, in the club Eden right Hazard now. No, Eden Hazard can't go a week without saying how much he loves Madrid. Yeah, so Eden Hazard's gone. Okay, and Golo Conte is, is too quiet to be a leader. Even David Luiz is too erratic to David be a leader. And he's also David Luiz, every, every other manager just benches David Luiz. Like, right. He's, he's kind of there. I don't even know what David Luiz has done his entire career. He's whatever. Like, keeper? Clearly, it's not Kepa. Okay, unless he wants to be a player manager at the age of 23. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, I, I, I don't know who is the leader on this team. And, I, and that, it seems like it's entirely at the whim of who comes in next. And so I think this team is just going to blow up. Like, I think they're going to be a mid-table team. I think they're done. I really think they're finished. No, I really so what I think so in theory, if this transfer ban does get confirmed by like the court for arbitration for support, they Somebody will then call have, the fireman because this podcast is getting <laughs> hot. Chelsea, in theory, have one summer with which to prepare their club for the next year of soccer without without signings, right? For the next year and a half without signings. Well, and then think about this Pul- Christian Pulisic. the greatest American prospect potentially ever, oh, is coming career, to this his team. Is done. <laughs> How scary is that from an American perspective? I I, I don't I, think it's so. I'm terrified of that. This is what I'm saying though. If they when they sell out when they sell Hazard to Real Madrid for say like 115 euro, million euros, which is yeah. what they're asking, and I yeah. think what it, what is a fair price. 
And they then offload three of the four of Emerson, David Zabacosta, Danny Drinkwater, and Ross Barkley. Why Ross Barkley? Let's Ross. I mean, maybe you can keep Ross Barkley. Ross he's been, Barkley's he's been, been the only good because he's season. been getting playing time because he's their yeah. only attacking threat from midfield. Okay, Kovacic is a solid midfielder. Well, he's also Kovacic on loan. He's not. He, do you think? Oh. I think I mean, yeah. Zidane keeps him. Real have their solution. Would be so Real have their solution to the midfield problem. We can't talk over each other. Um, oh my do God. I know who else is online for them? Gonzalo Higuain. So they'll like be without a striker next season. Hey, they'll have thirty-three-year-old Olivier Giroud, who people are calling to play over. Higuain right now because he scored a hat trick against Dynamo Kiev. Yeah, Kiev. No, that's what I'm saying though. But yeah, if they if they have have to move on, if they have 160 million to spend and they already have Pulisic coming in, I think that they can probably get you know three good players. They have one thing that's been baffling about Sari is that his refusal to play um, promising Danish center back Andreas Christensen, who was who looked to be like an, an elite center back. The There's before. something going up with that, though. Because, like, Conte didn't do that either. Conte played him. He played him in the second. No, Conte, Conte started him, like, consistently all year. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because they were playing the back three, and he was, well, he was a ball carrier. David Luiz was, like, sent off into the wilderness. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Which is further your did point he, about Did he play him in the championship season? I, I think, think he must have been. Wasn't he still on loan at Mönchengladbach yeah, that he, year? So, yeah. Point being, they also have Callum Hudson-Odoi. They have Ethan Ampadu. They I'm have a number of talents. No way, but I mean, Collins and he's he's a prospect for sure. But they haven't. They have, in theory, the best academy in England. But like, seeing like I, talking about Vinicius Real Madrid, you can't survive in crisis purely on prospects. Well, no, I think there needs to be a mix of incorporating and the talent Pul- they already have, and that is what Christian Pulisic is as well. Is a prospect. Uh, no, no, right. no, he's an established European player. No. I also 21 year old Pulisic, 22 year old Pulisic, he's been established so overhyped. Like, no, I agree with Kim. I think think he's a solid player, but like, I look at his stats and I'm like, he's never scored more than 10 goals in a season. He doesn't start for Dortmund out, which is partly because they know he's going to leave, but like, there are lots of young players at Dortmund that get more minutes, like Jaden Sancho, like Jacob Jacob Larson. Right? Like, I don't know. I'm not convinced that spending $50 million on Pulisic was wise, both for Chelsea and for him. I'm also not convinced that he can remotely replace any of Hazard's production. I don't, I don't think, think he'll think even he's be the able man. to replace Willian or Pedro when he goes. Well, viewing him as a like-for-like replacement with Hazard is just a poor... That's like a that's like a, a result of American media hype. There's no way... They're not even they're not particularly similar players, really. I'm not saying they're similar players. But, but that's the comparison that's that going to be made. There's a Hazard going out. Exactly. And there's a there's Pulisic, Pulisic coming, coming in. in. And like it or not, they're going to the play comparison. him in left midfield. Mm-hmm. And they're going to want him to do this. Like, I'm not saying that they're the same player. I'm not saying that they're remotely equal players. But I'm just saying, like, that's the role he's going to have to fill in the team. This is yeah. why Chelsea are <laughs> They're so <laughs> They're, like I, like, I can't even explain to you how awful shape this club is in. Like, it is shocking. It is, sh- like, they're it not really going to they're really they're talk about a top six anymore. They're going to talk about a top five. Wow. Caleb is really out on Chelsea. No, like, I just... If I was put in charge of this club, I would have no clue what I was going to do. Well, I think you because they have so many random players because they change managers every eighteen months, and that's why they accumulate Emerson on the bench. Like, what the heck? Marcus Alonso is not that good. Okay, as the might Mark, as well Mark leave. Only good. Right? Like, I know you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. Caleb Rose has come to life and maybe, here, but like, I really, they're they're done. Wow. All right. On that note, keep in mind. Keep in mind, this is the same Caleb Rhodes that once said that Mbappe <laughs> is not going to be good. So yeah, I don't think he said that. What did, you, what did you say about Mbappe? I mean, I think I just thought he was unproven. Yeah, which I think was true at the like, time. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm not okay, sure that was. Either it's, way. it's entirely possible that Wat- think, that Watford filled Chelsea's void. I think we have to end on this. Yeah. Let's end on this. We have one more thing to discuss here, but I'm gonna. I'm just gonna preface this by saying, if you're at a soccer game, any any sporting event, one thing to never do is run on the field and clothesline <laughs> an opposition player from behind. Because that is what we saw last weekend in the uh, championship derby, the second city derby between Aston Villa and Birmingham City, in which a Birmingham City player ran on the field. Fan. Birmingham City, sorry. Yeah, Birmingham City fan, fan, important to preface that, a Birmingham City fan invaded the pitch and just like at a WWE, clotheslined Aston Villa talisman Jack Grealish from behind in one of the many disgusting fan incidents that we have seen this season in particular. I want to ask you guys two questions in closing this podcast. Yeah. Why do you think we're seeing a lot more fan violence and just in general bad bad juju when it comes to fan interactions with players? We saw Chris Smalling get uh, pushed by a fan who actually turned out to be the cousin of a famous boxer, uh, Tyson Fury. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know. I had no, I had <laughs> yeah. no idea. Um, and that's related to why he did it. Mm-hmm. And also, we had the really scary incident with uh, James Tavernier and a fan in the Ranger in the, the Scottish Premier Premiership. Um, we also had that Hibernian fan get, or that Hibernian player get accosted as well. Um, so why do we why do we think we're seeing a lot of um, fan uprising? I have one said, answer: yeah. Brexit. Are you kidding right now? Or is this? I'm kind of kidding, but I was like, I, I just think everyone in England is very stressed right now. Well, I think we're just in a a lot more of an extreme time. No, no, uh, right. And I think that, yeah. Well, I think from a perspective of this last week, it's important to to take note of, like, or take light of the, the copycat effect. So I'm pretty sure that the Smalling incident was a direct result of the incident the day before in yeah. Birmingham. But and, and even though that is one of the fiercest rivalries in England, for God knows what reason. That was just still one of the most disgusting things it was, I've ever yeah, witnessed. It was in, just in terrible. Since, like, the malice at the palace... Yeah, no, no, or um, when um, what's his name, Rick Middleton on the Bruins jumped into the stand and started yeah. like literally which, beating, which, or, or Cantona which jumping we, into we the do f- not condone near this podcast. No, we don't condone it at all. Sick, but we do not. No, it was it. awesome, but it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. there's a difference between a player beating up a fan who's taking them on and a fan coming on the field and beating up the entertainment. I have to edit this out. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But I mean. Grealish, to be fair, got his revenge by scoring what ended up being the winning goal which is in the derby, which is awesome. Yeah. And he did the little, like, can you hear me uh, celebration, thing. too, which is awesome, which he has every right to do. I think it's great. Um, but I do think that, like, the Smalling incident in particular was a result of the publicity that this first attack got. So but why do we think it's happening? I don't think there's a reason. I mean, people people streak at sporting events all the time. No, but, like, why do we think we're seeing, like, a lot of uh, a higher volume of fan incidents and fan racism and like banana peels being thrown at Pierre Emerick Aubameyang and racist things being yelled at Raheem Sterling. Like, why are we seeing a lot of this vitriol from fans specifically this season? I mean, do you think there is a reason? I don't know. I don't know if there is a reason necessarily. So don't, don't do it. Don't hit soccer players or others or others. (laughs) Keep your hands to yourselves. Remember the golden rule. This has been corner kick. We're back in your ears. It's been a pleasure to chat with you on this fine, brisk Montreal evening. I've been Nick Vinden. Nathan Strauss. 
Caleb Briggs. And we will see you all next time. 